listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. The Gospel of Luke, looking at some of the miracles of Jesus that he performed that are exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. And and I wanted to address this from the outset, and that's that the miracles of Jesus are, are something that I think most people find interesting, whether or not you consider yourself a Christian or, or not, whether you're a person of faith at all these miracles of Jesus, they're stories that are, are captivating to most people. They, they, they're interesting. And and yet they're also, I think, often misunderstood, or at least most common understandings of the miracles of Jesus are underdeveloped. And 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 I'm going to use that word underdeveloped, and I want you to hold on to that. It's tempting to learn from the miracles of Jesus simply at face value, which to be clear, it, it isn't nothing. In today's text, Jesus is going to make a young man who was dead come back to life. And at face value, that's awesome in, in every way that you can imagine. The text will say that he was motivated by compassion towards the weeping mother, who was now a totally lonely and destitute widow. So we can learn that Jesus is compassionate towards sufferers. He cares for the needy. And and these are beautiful and important things. And so if you're reading Luke 7 verses 11 through 17 as part of your morning devotional and took just those things away, those three things that that Jesus is powerful over death to, to raise a dead man, that he has compassion towards sufferers, that he cares for the needy, then your time in the word that morning would have been profitable. It would be something worth sharing with your neighbor. It would be encouraging and thought-provoking and exciting. But Jesus didn't raise the dead man in Luke chapter 7 simply because he had compassion on the weeping widow. His miracles are always object lessons and metaphors about the nature of his love, his kingdom, and the ways that he's changing the world as the king of heaven. Through them, we learn the large truths that shape us and our faith and gain specific applications for our lives and all that we encounter. The the miracles of Jesus help us do all of that. And the miracles of Jesus are eschatological in nature, which is really just a fancy word that means that the miracles of Jesus teach us about the ultimate destiny of humanity and the final plans that God has for the world that he's made. And so Luke 7 verses 1, uh, 11 through 17 are a preview of everything that Jesus was going to accomplish throughout the rest of his life. And it still serves as a preview for us of that which he has yet to complete. And so the miracles of Jesus are about the ultimate destiny of God's creation. And so let's pray And let's see what God has for us in that together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, powerful over death. We ask that that you would, through the gracious gift of your Holy Spirit, have mercy on us so that we might see you for who you are, that we might see your beauty, be made alive to your beauty and your love, and, and, and be changed by it this morning. And we need your help for that. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
so our text today begins on the outskirts of town. And two large crowds are moving in opposite directions toward one another. One is a funeral procession. The leader of this crowd is a dead man, and everyone is following him. Most importantly, a weeping widow. She's alone, she's mourning, she's likely afraid of what will become of her without a man in her household to provide for her. And this first crowd, this funeral procession, they're headed out of the city, out of the city gates. And the other crowd moving toward the city, moving toward the funeral procession, is is an altogether different sort of crowd. It's a crowd full of life and excitement. It is a movement of people with hope and optimism. Their leader is the God of life, the King of heaven, the creator of the universe, and everyone in this crowd is following him. And they don't know that he's God yet, but they do know that wherever they go with him, amazing things just seem to happen. And so what's happening in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, is at the city gate, the way of death collides with the way of life. I'm going to say that again. At the city gate, the way of death collides with the way of life. And so, yes, this is a historical account of a real thing that happened in a small town in Israel, but it's also very much a metaphor, which is clear when we, when we break it down into those terms, that at the city gate, the way of death collides with the way of life. You see that this is more than just a historical account of a miracle. It's a metaphor for something so much more. A metaphor for the reality that human life has always been a funeral procession. Uh, Human life, apart from Christ, has always been a funeral procession. The masses following a dead man named Adam, who followed the voice of Satan himself into sin and death. This funeral procession has victims in its company, those who haven't yet been bitten by death itself, but are feeling the weight of its sting like childless widows. Yet all people born apart from Christ are in a real sense like the young man wrapped in grave clothes on the stretcher headed toward the grave outside the city gate, the grave that that never ends. At at least that's what Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 2 of his letter to them when he says that, that two Christian people, that formerly you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul is saying that before you encountered Christ, you were just dead men walking. This is the diagnosis for all the sons of Adam, all the human race, that we are dead and on the way to death and experiencing the pain of death while we yet live. Death stings. It is an enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed by our our King Jesus. Death leads us out of the city of God, like this funeral procession is leading the crowd out of the city gates. Death is an exit. It's a lonely departure, and sin does all of its bidding. Our flesh is, is rotten with it, and the sin of a person carries them on like pallbearers carry a body out of the city. And so if you're in the room this morning, I have a feeling that you're feeling what I mean, that, that you've felt the pain of death, that you've feared it. You've been crushed by it. You've mourned over it. 
And you have likely, well, not likely, you surely have given into the desires of sin at some time or another, which in the end left you feeling empty. See, what sin does is it turns our body into nothing more than corpses. This is the state of things for the crowd in the funeral procession. They're all bound up together in this grand ritual of dying. This was the state of things also in Bethlehem uh, on the night when the shepherds were visited by the angels, when, when our, they were told that, that our Lord was being born. It was l- like, like night in a rural place, death is dark and lonely. This was the state of things that Paul was describing in, in Ephesians chapter 2. It's the state of things here in Luke 7's funeral procession. And, and in all of these events, something profound happened. In all of them, there was this, this weighty feeling of, of being wrapped up in the, the ritual of dying. This, this feeling of being in a funeral procession of sorts. And in all of them, something profound happened. And that's this, that while the masses were following a dead man to the grave, God collided with them mercifully compassionately lovingly the angel commanded the shepherds in Bethlehem he said stop being afraid Christ tells the widow here in Luke 7 to stop weeping and the apostle tells the Ephesians to turn around to put off the way of death and follow the Lord of life to turn and and follow Christ to put away the old man and walk as a new man so when the God of life and the way of life collides with the man of death and the way of death God makes that collision mercifully it's a beautiful collision when the way of life collides with the way of death the text says that Jesus acted toward the widow after seeing her and having compassion on her. And so maybe you're in the room this morning full of shame and guilt. You just came in overwhelmed with shame and guilt because you've been walking in the way of death, indulging in the fleeting pleasures and releases that sin provides. And let me tell you this, God sees you. You've been found out. But as we prayed earlier in the liturgy, our, our Father does not desire the death of sinners. He, he sees you. You've been found out, but God doesn't desire to crush you. Instead, he has compassion on you. He has love for you. So even though you are a rebel toward God, walking in the way of sin and darkness, God also sees you like our Lord saw the widow in Luke 7, like, like a, a lonely, destitute widow. He sees you, and, and he, he has compassion for you. Maybe you came into the room this morning not overwhelmed with guilt and shame, but, but you're suffering because of the great loss that death brings. Maybe you are mourning a real death. I, I am. This is the way I came in this morning. Maybe you're mourning a, a, another sort of loss. Maybe you're full of fear and anxiety and this unplaceable sadness that you just can't shake. And let me tell you, brother or sister, God sees you. He sees me. He sees us all, and his heart is full of compassion toward us. He is the God of life for those who are marching in the way of death or or those who are mourning in the wake of death. 
the collision of life and death is a beautiful collision indeed. Jesus says to the widow, he says, do not weep. And and this, I think, is a confusing text if we take it to be just a general prescription for people in the face of death that, that God would tell them not to weep. It seems inconsistent, incompatible even with the heart of God and, and the language of the scriptures outside of this. I mean, Jesus himself in John chapter 11 wept when his friend Lazarus died. And, and just like here in Luke 7, he knew that the dead person that was being mourned over was going to be raised, that he was going to raise Lazarus back to life, just like he's going to raise the widow's son back to life. And he wept in, in John 11. So, so isn't, it, isn't it hypocritical for him to be telling this, this widow not to weep? Well, no. I, see, see, it's not silly for the widow to weep. And, and she wasn't wrong for weeping, and Jesus wasn't angry with her for weeping. He wasn't rebuking her. See, if we were there, I think we would have been able to see the body language and the posture of our Lord just exuding compassion and tenderness and love in those words. See, I I think when Jesus said to do not weep to the widow that he was proclaiming gospel to her. He knows she's desperate to be saved from her situation, that that she's feeling hopeless and and, and alone and and in need of a miracle. And, And in this, he's making a promise to her. Your weeping is not necessary. To help you kind of understand this, I'll, I'll give you an example that's a lot more trivial than this. When, when I was a kid, I went out to dinner with a family who lived across the street from me, and, and they, they had more money than we did, and we ended up at a much nicer restaurant than I anticipated that we would go to. And so when the check arrived, you can imagine me as a kid just kind of timidly pulling out the few dollars I had in my pocket, feeling a, a bit ashamed, a, a bit uncomfortable, a, a bit hopeless in this moment. And, and the man whose family I was eating with, he looked at me with so much kindness and he, he smiled and he, he just said, put that away. When he looked at my money, he said, just put that away. Your money is no good here. Jesus treated the widow like this. She's weeping because what else was she to do? She had nothing left. She would be destined for tears. And Jesus saw her in her need, in her lowliness. And he said, your weeping is just no good here. Put it away. Which makes sense from from the man who, who said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And then Jesus does something that is truly shocking for a Jewish leader and a prophet. He, he, he came up to the bier, which is like a stretcher holding the dead body, which would have likely been wrapped in linen strips. And, and when he came up to it, he touched it. And in this physical act, which seems uh, unnecessary for, for a God who can, who can speak the world into existence without ever lifting a finger, right? Like Jesus didn't need to touch the body in order for this young man to, to come alive, but, but he, he came up to this stretcher and he touched it. And in this moment, Jesus became ceremonially unclean, which for many of you in the room, in fact, probably all of us in the room, that doesn't mean very much as modern Christians to be ceremonially unclean. Is, it's just language we don't work with. It's not a fear that we have becoming unclean, but it was really, really significant for a Jewish leader in front of a Jewish audience at a Jewish funeral procession for him to come and, and touch 
the body or, or the place where the body was laid to become unclean. See, see, to be unclean would mean that Jesus is now for seven days unwelcome in the sanctuary to worship, to offer sacrifice, to participate in ritual feasts, to, to really participate in any temple worship at all. He would have to be excluded from that for seven days, and, and he would need to be washed and cleansed by a priest in order to re-enter the house of God. And, and so to touch a dead body is to become unclean. But I, I do want to note that ceremonial uncleanliness is not moral failure. That's not the way it's understood in the Old Testament. That's not the way the audience wouldn't have understood it. They wouldn't have thought Jesus was sinning in this moment because he wasn't, but he was making himself unclean, unfit for the house of God until he was properly cleansed. And to touch a dead body or associate with a dead body, these are probably the most important ceremonial cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. Because God's sanctuary, the temple and the tabernacle preceding it, were, were set up as representations of heaven on earth, representations of the Garden of Eden and the land east of Eden. And, and these are places in which death cannot exist and in which death, death is most unwelcome. And so death is a foreign thing to God and his habitat. It's the result of disobedience and rebellion from God. So death has no place in the ascended worship of the eternal God of life, just like death has no place in heaven. But Jesus... Knew, knowing this, he, he touched the place where the young man laid. He made himself unclean. And then he spoke, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak. Again, this is the historical reality of what happened that day. A funeral procession was stopped in its tracks because their reason for proceeding became irrelevant as death was put to flight, right? Like this is maybe the only funeral in the history of the world that was just called off because it was no longer necessary. But it's more than that. It's also a preview for the work that Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross. See, Jesus became ceremonially unclean here in Luke chapter 7 in order to bring one man, one dead man back to life. But at the cross, he became morally unclean. He became culpable, culpable as the sins of humanity were laid upon him in his death. And he not only became unclean by associating with death, but he became dead himself in order to bring all humanity back to life, all who would come to him, that they might be restored to life. He who knew no sin, the apostle says, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became filthy, mired by the stench of death in order that all of us could sit up and speak so that our funeral procession could be stopped and made to turn around back toward the city of God, the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life. See, in Jesus' birth, the way of life collided with the way of death. In Luke 7, Jesus collides the way of life with the way of death. See, in the birth, as the God of life, the God of heaven, the God of eternity enters into a world marked by death and sorrow and brokenness, the way of life collides with the way of death. Here in Luke 7, the way of life is colliding with the way of death as Jesus in his heavenly movement encounter this funeral procession and, and change the course of history and this family's existence. And then at the cross at Calvary, the way of life collides with the way of death as Jesus endures death at the cross. And Jesus' 
funeral procession was not like this one here in Luke 7 because Jesus' funeral procession made it all the way to the grave. He was laid down, and for days on end, he was silent, dead, outside the city gate. The author of Hebrews tells us about how Jesus' sacrificial death made him like the body of an animal sacrificed for temple worship. And those animal corpses had to be taken outside the city gates and their bodies had to be burned because they were totally unclean. They were unfit for the, the house of God, but also in their death and having been sacrificed before God, they were, they were cast outside the city altogether. They had no place in the dwelling place of God's people. And, and the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says this is a big deal because this is what happened to Jesus, that he too suffered outside the city gates so that we could enter into the heavenly city's gates rejoicing, right? And so Jesus makes this procession out of the city so that we might forever be invited to enter in. So if you're in the room this morning and your life is just a a steady walk in the procession of burial outside the gates of the city of God, away from the life and the light of God, today, I tell you, you have collided with the way of life. With the way of God, he sees you. He has compassion on you. He loves you and he is inviting you to weep no more. Arise from your sleep, speak his name, Lord, Savior, King, Christ Jesus, and turn around and come back into the city of God. And for Christians in the room, you, you've already been made alive. You've already turned around. You've already spoken up and, and proclaimed, sat up and spoken that, that Christ is King. And yet sometimes, if you're honest, you still realize that you're a lot like the widow in in this procession. You're weeping because of the pain that sin, death, sorrow, and brokenness cause. And it's it's right and appropriate at times for you to weep. Trust me, I, I know the level to which that's appropriate. But we do not weep as those headed to an eternal funeral because though... You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us at the cross and in his resurrection, he has made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God for we are his workmanship. And so you may weep now, but one day know that our Christ will come again. And for the last time, the way of death will collide with the way of life and the way of death will be destroyed for good and there will be an establishment of a heavenly city which walls will always stand, whose gates will, will ever stand and, and there will be no weeping and no death within its gates. They will be cast out as unclean forever. In the apostles' writing, and I say apostles because I don't just mean Paul, Peter, John, they they all use this phrase, a little while. A little while when talking about how much longer it is that we will endure the pain of a broken world or the suffering that comes with following Christ. They they say, in in just a little while, you you will weep no more. In just a little while, the, the funeral procession is ended forever. In just a little while, your pain, brother or sister, will be relieved. In just a little while, hold fast. In just a little while, just a little while longer, the king of life is coming. So just in a little while, the God of grace and mercy, he sees 
sees you just a little bit longer, just a little while longer. He hasn't forgotten you. It's just going to be a little while. He hasn't abandoned you. He's just, it's just going to be a little while. He hasn't forsaken you. It's just going to be a little while. In fact, he was forsaken so that you would always be in his remembrance forever. And so, so for just a little while, we may suffer and weep, but we proceed in the way of life, true life, everlasting life. The way of life is the procession following the one who has authority over death. Simply put, the way of life is the way of following Christ wherever it is that he might take us. It is faith in the Son of God, come whatever may, tomorrow or the next day. This is, by God's grace, the way of the true church. Everyone in this room came here for a reason, and I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're here because you found community here at Sojourn Montrose, and you've established friends and a network of people that provide meaningful support in your life. And if that's true, hallelujah. Maybe you're here out of a curiosity regarding faith and Christianity. Maybe you're here because you hope to be taught something and, and you thought this might be a place to learn something. Maybe you're here because it, it makes you feel good to be here in a way that you can't quite describe. Maybe you're here because you want to live better, be more morally upright or righteous. Maybe you're here because you thought it would help you overcome that addiction you've been battling. Maybe you're here because you think your kids should grow up with a moral and spiritual foundation and you thought this might be the place to do this. I don't know why you're here this morning, but here's what I want you to know about being here. The message that's been proclaimed this morning is the reason why you should ultimately be here. The message that the God of life has collided with the way of death mercifully and has invited us into life forever. See, there are tons of benefits to walking in the community of the church, to being taught the Bible, to attending Sunday gatherings, to participating in the life of, of God's covenant people, but they are all secondary and even products of the fact that we have been invited by God to turn away from sin and death and follow his son, Jesus Christ, in the way of life. We are here because like the widow, we were hopeless apart from the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. We're here because we've realized that there's no no other life worth living than a life of devotion to King Jesus because he is the only one who can save us from death, who can comfort us fully in grief, who can guide us truly into life everlasting. So does that influence the way that we live and walk in community with one another? Yes, of course it does. That's why churches in whatever city you might go to are, are, are one of the only places where you'll find real committed friendships. So does that news about the way of life colliding with the way of death influence the way that we live morally? Yes, in every way, because God has made us alive together with Christ. He's united us to the perfect Son of God, and we're being made like Him to serve Him in obedience and joy. We've tasted the death that sin brings, and we want to run from it as fast as we can and run into the arms of God's compassionate love. Does it influence the way we raise our kids? I, I hope so. I hope it does in, in every single way. Does the truth about Jesus change the way we fight addiction? Certainly. The only freedom from the strongholds of sin and death are, are, are found in the resurrection and new life of Christ. Does it change the way that we mourn, the way that we sing, the way that we work? the way that we relate to others, yes, it changes everything. It changes everything, brothers and sisters, because the way of life compared to the way of death is the difference between a funeral procession and a parade. That is the gospel of Jesus compared to anything the world has to offer, and that is why we are here. So join the parade. Don't look back. 
we are headed into the city of God. Let us pray together and then feast with him at his table.